I thought it was interesting that all of the worship songs today had to do with relying on God um, in one way or another. And um, the message today talks a lot about things we need to do. And the idea is this is stuff that God wants to do through us. If we try to do it on our own, we end up tired and frustrated and bitter and it, it doesn't work. So um, as I talk, please keep in mind that this is stuff that God would do through you, not a list of things that you have to do when you walk out of here feeling all burdened or something. So, um, My name's Marianna. You heard that already. Um, Randy considered phoning his lesson in, but then thought better of it and, you know, gave me a stab at one of the messages in his series. And when David and I spoke to you at the beginning of the year, uh, I said that Christianity is not a belief system. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle where what you believe dictates what you do. And this week in our community group, we sang an old Keith Green song. It took me back about 25 years. And part of what it says is, I want to take your word and shine it all around, but first help me to just live it. And that's, that's something we need to learn to live, these things. That's, that's the gospel that people will see before they even crack open a Bible. Um, I want to start with a blessing. Clara's already blessed the moms. I want to bless everybody. And in case you're not familiar with this practice, uh, what it can look like is a prayer where instead of asking God for what we need to make this lesson come to life, um, I'm going to speak directly to your spirits and try to impart what will help you um, work this out and the idea is that words have power Proverbs 18:21 tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue so the words you say really do make a difference so if you would pray with me blessed are you Lord our God king of the universe who created every person here I call each spirit to attention in the name of Jesus to engage with the Holy Spirit Spirit, I bless you with a new perspective and with the ability to experience unbridled joy at the discovery of new truths in old words. I bless you with the courage to put those discoveries into action. I bless you with the joy that comes with the ability to accept the truth about yourself as Jesus sees you. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, Jeremiah 15:16 says, "When I discovered your words, I devoured them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God of heaven's armies." And then in James we're told, "Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says." I thought it was interesting that last week Randy had us identify certain areas of our life that maybe need improvement, and he asked us to think of one thing we could do in each area that we could do throughout the week to make a change. And I want to encourage you to approach every learning opportunity that way with two questions in your mind, and that can be a Sunday sermon, it can be a lesson in community group, it might be religious programming, it might be reading a devotional or reading your Bible. Start off asking God, God, what do you want to tell me? And this is especially true if it's a story you've heard before. I've had to to do this even with like seven-year-olds who will come into a class and you say, today we're going to learn about Noah. And they say, oh, I know that story. And you have to tell them, okay, but the wonderful thing about the Bible is that you can hear the story again and learn something new. So I bet God's going to teach you something new today. 
So we need to walk into these learning opportunities with that question. And the second question, Lord, what do I need to do? You're going to tell me something. It's probably going to involve something I need to do. What is that? Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? And in John 14, he says, If you really love me, you'll obey what I command. So devour God's words and let them become a part of you. Now, title for the message today, Let's Go Outside, might not make much sense. You have a little sheet to take notes in if that's what what you like to do, and there's probably some pens in the back if you need one. And then on the other side, some people will give you a couple of scriptures. I gave you a whole chapter. But it's not for you to read now for a couple of reasons. One, you won't be able to do it justice, but also because the paper's going home with you and I'm not. So, um, But there's a line where, where this is the message paraphrase. He says, so let's go outside where Jesus is. And today we're going to focus on growing in an outward direction. I'll explain that a little more later. So that's the idea behind let's go outside and live a selfless life. Okay, I want to talk about Mother's Day for a minute. Um, For those of you who are under 23 years old, come way back in time with me. Back before you were born to 1983. And you know, all my life, every day meant trying to please my mom, which was basically impossible. But Mother's Day meant trying to impress her, which was quite the challenge. But Mother's Day uh, 1983 was the first time it started meaning something different to me because I was expecting a baby. It wasn't due till Christmas Day, and I refused to be in the hospital Christmas Day, let me tell you. But um, that's another story. Um, But I was starting to realize some different things about motherhood. And I don't know if you can tell in the picture, but the reason my mom is standing behind me is because she's holding my maturity shirt tight to try to show my belly. Okay, the baby's not due to Christmas. You know, there's not much belly there. There's enough that I couldn't fit into my size 3 wardrobe, but, you know, not enough to show. And, yes, I said size 3. All those lessons about personal growth, I kind of took them literally. (laughs) I was listening. Anyway. Okay, so 1984, a year later, I'm experiencing more of motherhood. And the rest, as they say, is history, also called Rick. And I bring this up just as an excuse to show baby pictures, but besides that, um, about the same time in the other end of the world, in Australia, there was another woman who was experiencing motherhood for the first time, and she named her son um, Nick. And Nick is now a college graduate. He has the Australian equivalent of a bachelor's in business administration. And something I think is fascinating about him, he has started his own nonprofit where he travels the world as a motivational speaker, telling people um, that they should be passionate about life. And I think that'd be a cool thing for all of us to do, not necessarily travel and talk to a thousand people at once, but with every person you meet, being able to encourage them. And I I wish I could read all your minds and get your reaction, because I'm betting at least some of you are thinking, you know, lady, I'm the one that needs encouragement. You have no idea what's going on in my life. Or, you know, every day I take care of my four kids and my husband, and that's it. You better not be telling me I need to do any more or reach out to anybody else. So let me tell you more about Nick. Let me tell you the rest of the story. Part of his message is telling people, don't look at what you can do. Look at what God can do through you. And I'm going to describe the photo for those who will be listening to this recording and can't see it. 
as you can see, Nick has no arms and no legs. He's got a little foot thing sticking out of his left hip, but that's about it. And he had a pretty challenging childhood, as you might imagine. He, uh, he reached the point of being so depressed over all the things he couldn't do and how hard it was to do the things he could that he was even suicidal. Until one day when he was 15, he was reading the Gospel of John. And he got to the part where Jesus was dealing with a, a guy who'd been born blind. Now, Nick was born this way, and the doctors don't know why. Well, back in that day, the way Jews reconciled the idea of a good God with people suffering calamities like this was that you must deserve it. You must have done something wrong if something goes bad in your life. And so they asked Jesus, Lord, why was this man born blind? Was it something he did? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, no, you got it all wrong. This, this wasn't punishment. This man was born this way so God's glory could be manifest through him. And at that moment, Nick understood that he wasn't an accident. That God didn't just, you know, fall asleep as he was making him in his mother's womb. He understood that he was born on purpose and for a purpose and that that purpose probably involved others. And, you know, as he goes around the world talking to people, you know, he could stay home where everything's within his reach and nobody's treating him like a freak and laughing at him or whatever. But he doesn't. He goes out there and he seems to be really enjoying himself. And you can see him there on his trip to Africa, and it kind of looks like a mosh pit. The, the kids are carrying him over their shoulders. But he really seems to enjoy himself. I encourage you to go to his website where you can actually watch video and see what an enthusiastic, funny, passionate person he is. Um, the website is lifewithoutlimbs.org. But let's go back um, to the banner um, that I took from his website. Do you see Nick differently now? Do you see your own concerns and your own limitations a little bit differently now, I hope? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Life's most urgent question is, what are you doing for others? And for the last few weeks, we've been learning what it takes to live a balanced life. Um, and that invo involves growing evenly in four directions, just by way of a quick review. Growing upward, our relationship with God. Growing inward, our relationship with people in the body of Christ growing outward, our relationship with people who aren't in the body of Christ yet, and growing forward, meaning you continue to grow and heal and improve as an individual, as a family, as a community group, what have you. And I think a good visual for this is imagine a car, just a regular old passenger car, and you put a big tractor wheel, just one, on one end, and then you've got the three little car wheels. Okay, it's going to be really lopsided. So we don't want to concentrate on just one area. We want to grow in all four. And today, like I said, is outward. Um, and that involves relationships. Randy's been reviewing what it takes to really connect with others. And he gave us this definition of intimacy as a deep mutual self-disclosure to which the response is communicated care. When you really connect with somebody, you're both going to open up and share something of yourselves. And you're not going to reject that about each other. Okay? You're going to communicate that you care about the other person. And last Sunday, we also reviewed the four ingredients for intimacy, for connecting with people. And I think the best model of this was Jesus and how he treated people. And one of my favorite scenes out of his life is when he met the woman at the well. And in, in this scene alone, he shows us these four ingredients for intimacy. Um, 
So let's look at the four of those ingredients. Um, first, um, for, he starts off the whole conversation with, would you give me a drink of water? Now, you need to understand something about this woman, and I'll keep it brief. First of all, she was a woman. And for people like Jesus, in general, women were considered subhuman. Okay. Uh, you didn't talk to them unless you had to. In fact, legend goes, I haven't been able to find proof of this, that good Hebrew men would wake up each morning, and the first thing they would say, probably with their wife laying there, was, thank you, Lord, that you did not make me a woman. Thank you, Lord, that you did not make me a slave, and you did not make me a Gentile. Okay. Beyond being a woman, she was a Samaritan. Now, throughout history, you've had two extremes of Judaism, even today. You have the very orthodox Jews that follow every rule, and this is their worship to God. And then you have the Jews who go ahead and intermarry with other people, worship other gods, and the religious rules aren't that important to them. Of course, most people are somewhere in the middle. Jesus was born into the side of Judaism where you really follow all the rules real closely. And on top of that, he was considered a teacher, kind of like a minister. So a person like him really doesn't talk to a Samaritan woman. And on top of that, she wasn't even a typical woman. She had been around the block. She'd been married four times. She was shacking up with a guy. Um, she was even ostracized from her own peers. That's why she's at the well alone instead of going when all the other women went earlier in the morning. So imagine him in his little clerical collar and her in her hoochie mama outfit. Okay? And you can see that this is the most unlikely candidate for Jesus to connect with, and yet he does. And what he does is he focuses on the one thing where she's superior to him at that moment. She's got a jug, and he doesn't. Okay. I don't know how thirsty he really was, but it was a, just a neat way to introduce himself by pu putting her in a position where she's superior to him, at least in a small way. So he, that's how he communicates, I need you. Then he communicates, I care about you. He says, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh living water. I am willing to give you something. I'm not just here because I need a drink and I can use you. He also communicated, I trust you, when she said, you know, we've heard that there's a Messiah that's to come and save us. He said, I am he. And that may not sound so revolutionary, but for him to say that, she could then accuse him of blasphemy. He could get in a lot of trouble. When you see other people asking him the same question, are you the Messiah, he either doesn't answer them or he kind of beats around the bush. But with her, he just went right out and told her, and he was making himself vulnerable. So I trust you. And finally, I love you. He says, the time is coming. It has, in fact, come when what you're called will not matter and where you go to worship will not matter. Because she had asked him, you know, that Samaritans were so looked down on in the whole caste system of Judaism that they weren't even considered really Jews. They couldn't worship at the temple. And so they said, fine, we got our own mountain. We'll build our own church. We'll worship over there. And, of course, the Jews, the good Jews, didn't accept that. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter what they call you. It doesn't matter where you worship. I love you. And so he made himself available to this one person, and the whole town came out to see him. Um, this is out of John 4. I don't know if I mentioned that. A central concept of Jewish teaching was love your fellow Jew as yourself. 
And Jesus totally turns this on its head when he tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. And then when they ask him, okay, Lord, who qualifies as my neighbor? Okay, this is really different. He talks about the Good Samaritan. And so you have to understand that for his peers to hear the term Good Samaritan, that's like the ultimate oxymoron. That's like a law-abiding gangster. Okay? It just, he basically tells them, anybody that you choose to have mercy on, that's who you're supposed to love. And he made that the second greatest commandment. He said that was second only to loving God as passionately and completely as possible, was loving your neighbor and your neighbors, anybody. I don't know if we still get that. It's so revolutionary. It's not just people like us, but it's anybody. So what would happen if you took hold of this idea that each of you, and me too, were born on purpose, and for a purpose, and that purpose involves others? I want to show you a quick little video. Um, it's the woman at the well, kind of a contemporary rendition. And even though she's talking to Jesus, she could be talking to you too. Somebody could say something like this to you someday. I am a woman of no distinction, of little importance. I am a woman of no reputation, save that which is bad. You whisper as I pass by and cast judgmental glances, though you don't really take the time to look at me or even get to know me. For to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known, and otherwise what's the point in doing either one of them in the first place? I want to be known. I want someone to look at my face and not just see two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and two ears, but to see all that I am and could be, all my hopes, loves, and fears. That's too much to hope for, to wish for or pray for, so I don't, not anymore. Now I keep to myself, and by that I mean the pain that keeps me in my own private jail, the pain that's brought me here at midday to this well. To ask for a drink is no big request, but to ask it of me, a woman unclean, ashamed, used and abused, an outcast, a failure, a disappointment, a sinner, no drink passing from these hands to your lips could ever be refreshing, only condemning, as I'm sure you condemn me now, but... You don't. You're a man of no distinction, though of the utmost importance, a man with little reputation, at least so far. You whisper and tell me to my face what all those glances have been about, and you take the time to really look at me. But don't need to get to know me for to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. And you know me. You actually know me. All of me and everything about me. Every thought inside and hair on top of my head. Every hurt stored up. Every hope. Every dread. My past and my future. All I am and could be. You tell me everything. You tell me about me. And that which is spoken by another would bring hate and condemnation. Coming from you brings love, grace, mercy, hope, and salvation. I've heard of one to come who would save a wretch like me. And here in my presence you say I am he. To be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And I just met you, but I love you. I don't know you, but I want to get to. Let me run back to town. This is way too much for just me. There are others, brothers, sisters, lovers, haters, the good and the bad, sinners and saints, who should hear what you've told me, who should see what you've shown me, who should taste what you gave me, who should feel how you forgave me. For to be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And they all need this too. We all do need it for our own.
I think if you had any idea what God can do through you, you'd definitely be passionate. That's not saying you're not already. I think God's calling us to a higher level. It's so cool to see people's lives changed by something you've said or just the fact that you made yourself available. But let's get realistic. Do you know what the word passionate means? It comes from the idea of passing through, passing through something, going through something, suffering. And passion can even be excruciating. And that word comes from the word for tormented, specifically tormented on a cross. Matthew 10:38, Jesus said, Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But not following Jesus passionately is even worse than the passion. Jesus called people fools if they listened to his words but didn't put them into practice. He said that would lead to their destruction. That's Matthew 7. So reaching out to others can be uncomfortable. It can even be painful if the way they react to you is hurtful. But that's one of the sacrifices that we bring to Jesus. It's a form of worship. I don't know if you remember us talking about spiritual disciplines, fasting and prayer specifically. Well, there's two others that are called service and submission, and they involve relationship with others. Both of those um, bring me back to the title of this message, Let's Go Outside, which is where the people are. People are outside our comfort zone. They're outside our little circle of friends. The message paraphrase of Hebrews 13, which is what I handed you, says, let's go outside where Jesus is. That's the kind of sacrifice that constitutes worship that is pleasing to God. Let me tell you what this meant for me as a young Christian. I set a goal that every year I would lead at least one person to Christ. And I did that for the first few years. And eventually I started realizing that that had come out of my own hurt out of the way I was raised, where your value is dependent on what you produce, what you give, what you bring, that that was really more my motivation. It wasn't necessarily something God had called me to do. Not that there's anything wrong with bringing people to Christ. It was just my motivation in setting this particular goal was a selfish motivation because that's the only world I had known. And the, the problem with that is that I was limiting myself to people who were pretty much ready for, for that. Um, there's something called the Engel scale where a zero means the point at which somebody is ready to accept Christ and accepts him. And then you start growing in Christ and eventually you get to a plus four where you're actually in leadership. But the scale starts at a minus 12. A minus 12 is someone who has like no concept of God. Nothing. And then moving up the scale you get to the point where okay I think there might be some kind of divine intelligence and that's all. And then you get to the point where, okay, I think there might be an actual God that cares about people, but I don't know if Jesus is connected to him or not. Okay, so there's that scale. And so because I was going after the ones that would get converted pretty soon, I was missing a lot of the people that God was bringing to me. And it's it's unusual, it could happen, but it's unusual to take someone from don't even know what the word God means to accepting Christ, um, being the same person. Jesus told us one person sowed the seed and another one would water and then another one would reap the harvest. That's not always true, but that tends to be what it looks like. And so I started seeing everybody that came across my path, even if they were already a Christian, but still needed some encouragement to grow as someone that God might want to use me, to, to impact. And I also found that my greater strengths were actually at the two ends. 
I can talk to people who are still figuring out this God thing, and I do well with people who are learning how to be transformed. My biggest strength isn't right at that zero point where I can get the brownie points because I'm the one that led them to Christ. And that's okay. Someone who was an expert at reaching out to people all over the scale was Mother Teresa. And she did so much good, but she never kept track. She said, intense love does not measure, it just gives. And I bring that up because so often we keep track of what we've done for somebody, even what we've done for God, like we think the world owes us a medal or something. And that, that will lead to bitterness. Um, it's also not a sacrifice for God. If I'm doing something so that someone will react positive to me or, or do what I need them to do, then I'm doing it for myself. I'm not doing it for them. Certainly not doing it for God. If I'm doing something so that God will bless me, well, that's not a sacrifice. Okay. Just a little perspective. Part of Mother Teresa's work was with the lepers of Calcutta, where they were just left to die in open sewers, covered in maggots and such. Yet look at what she said. She said, I see God in every human being. When I wash the leper's wounds, I feel I am nursing the Lord himself. Is it not a beautiful experience? And when I first came across that many years ago, I thought, okay, leprosy is many things, but it is not beautiful. Talking about people who have chunks of flesh falling off and they're contagious. Okay. But she's seeing them through God's eyes, and she's seeing that God is with them. When God said, I will be with you always, he's also with every person. So what you're talking about here is ministering to God himself, to Jesus himself. And I encourage you to look in, in the Gospels at the scene where Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, his wild man, older cousin. And John the Baptist's reaction is, man, I should be baptized by you. I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to tie your shoes. But he understands what a privilege that is. And that's the, the Mother Teresa attitude, too. So I want us to, every person we encounter, see Jesus in them somewhere, maybe very well hidden. Um, he said, whatever we did, even for the most unfortunate people, we were doing for him. That's Matthew 25. Okay, so we talked about the meaning of passion, and now I want to define purpose. Purpose, I think it's pretty obvious, refers to your reason for being. But in the biblical languages, it really has more to do with placement, and they, they go together. Um, if you walk into my house, I've invited you over for lunch, and you see a spoon on the table, you're going to figure we're going to have some soup. The placement indicates its purpose. If I'm just inviting you over for sandwiches and chips, then, well, like the movie, there is no spoon. All right, that's just a freebie for you Matrix fans. And sometimes we, we feel bad about ourselves because we're not Billy Graham or whoever, you know, it is that's impressed you in, in, in their work for God. Well, you might not be a spoon. You might be more like a scalpel. And, and a scalpel is a, a very important tool. You know, doctors use this to save lives, but I don't recommend you try to drink soup with it. <laughs> that, that could hurt. Um, and I think probably the function I'm serving right now is more like a scalpel as God does surgery on us. And did you know God does surgery? He does heart transplants. Look at Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, 
and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I thought that was an interesting term, heart of flesh. The heart is your mind, your understanding, your soul, that thing that is capable of carrying courage. And a human heart is one which brings, announces, or publishes good news and which can experience the joy and the encouragement of hearing those good news. And so I'm sure you've all either felt this yourselves or, or felt it with somebody else where you can tell them all day long, God really loves you, it's wonderful, but their heart is stone. They're not, they're not ready to receive that. There's no place for it to land. And that's God's business is turning those hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And that hurts sometimes. You definitely, I can tell you this from a lot of research of my own, <clears throat> you definitely hurt more when you have a heart of flesh than when you have a heart of stone. But you also experience life more. And who wants to go around in an emotional coma? You know? But a lot of people do because without God, the pain of life can just be too unbearable. So you just turn it off, don't feel it. But what God does for believers is give us the grace to be able to get through the pain. And when he specifically calls us to do something painful, there's a purpose for it. That makes a huge difference. Jeremiah 29:11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And I've wondered sometimes, um, you know, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? He's never asked me that. What he has asked me at least a thousand times is, do you trust me? Because that's, that's more my issue. Um, usually when I'm doing what I think I should be doing, but the results aren't there yet, and so it's like, are you just leading me to slaughter? <laughs> Am I just going to fail? And he says, do you trust me? And I was like, oh, Lord, I trust you, but could it be fixed already, you know? Um, so when you reach out to others and feel uncomfortable, if their reaction hurts, um, remember that God is in the process of giving them and you a new heart. And he's in the process of molding your character to match his. Helen Keller, who was deaf and blind, said, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experiences of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. You know what they say, no pain, no gain. Now, Jesus knew his purpose. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He said, God's Spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor, sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free, to announce this is God's year to act. That's Luke 4 out of the message. So he knew what he was here for, and if we're Christians, little Christ, people like Christ, then maybe we should have a similar purpose, right? So let's, let's see, what did, what did God actually tell people? Well, in the Old Testament, first marching orders he gave them was, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1.28. So we are to do things that bear fruit, to make more humans, and to take care of the earth. I want to read it out of the message. Prosper, reproduce, fill earth, take charge, 
be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And then we get new marching orders in the New Testament, but they're kind of an echo. This is Matthew 28:18 out of the Amplified. Jesus approached and breaking the silence said to them, All authority, all power of rule in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go then and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, all the days perpetually, uniformly, and on every occasion, to the very close and consummation of the age. Amen, so let it be. Let me read it to you from the message. Same passage. Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave this charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. I'll be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up to the end of the age. And that end of the age means the end of the universe. So we're to obey, to do the things he told us to do, and that's primarily making more Christians. Prophet Daniel foresaw as being successful at this in Daniel 11:32. The people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and shall stand firm and do exploits for God. Okay, so we've got our marching orders. We're all ready to go get the world. You know, they're all looking at me like, uh... How do we grow outward? How do we reach out to others who aren't already part of this Christian body? Here's some quick tips from Dr. John C. Maxwell. If you need the the precise site, I can give it to you later. And he has an anagram of the word connect. This is how to connect. C is for consider others first. Albert Einstein said, only a life lived for others is worth living. O, open yourself up to them. There can be no vulnerability without risk, and there can be no community without vulnerability. That's M. Scott Peck. You'll never guess who said this one. Before you can inspire with emotion, you must be swamped with it yourself. Before you can move to tears, your own must flow. To convince them, you must yourself believe. Winston Churchill. That surprised me. N, never violate their trust. Proverbs 11.13 says, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. Another N, never manipulate them. Dr. Joyce Brothers says, Love comes when manipulation stops. When you think more about the other person than about his or her reaction to you. When you dare to reveal yourself fully. When you dare to be vulnerable. That's the being vulnerable and opening yourself up, it's also the not manipulating the person. E, encourage them at every opportunity. Flatter me, and I may not believe you. Criticize me, and I may not like you. Ignore me, and I may not forgive you. Encourage me, and I will not forget you. William Arthur Ward. C, constantly add value to their lives. Here's another Winston Churchill saying, you make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. Giving frees us from the familiar territory of our own needs by opening our mind to the unexplained worlds occupied by the needs of others. That is so true. That's Barbara Bush. 
T, treat them with respect. Respect is love and plain clothes. And Mother Teresa said, kind words can be short and easy to speak, but their echoes are truly endless. Anytime that you feel, find it hard to be kind to someone, you need to check. What's, what's going on here, Lord? I know you want me to love this person. I know you want me to say kind words. What is it that's, that's blocking me? Okay, a few last ideas. Make yourself available. Connecting takes time, whether it's a coworker, a family member, or whatever. You just need to make yourself available. I um, was at the car dealership this week getting the car service, and I'm sitting there reading, and I hear somebody come and sit behind me and start a conversation with the lady that was sitting behind me. And I'm not really listening, but then I start hearing him talk about how he worked for 39 years for the second largest chemical plant in the world and on and on. And I realized, wait, I've heard this before. I was at the dealership a month ago with the other car, and this guy came in and started a conversation with somebody else and told them his story because he needs to be known and he needs to be validated. And he needs to hear, even though you're retired, your life still matters. And so he goes places and just starts up conversation, you know. Um, you'll be amazed how much people will tell you if you just listen. Learn how to ask questions that invite the other person to open up to you. This guy's obviously an extrovert. Not everyone is. I love this Kipling rhyme. I had six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names were where and what and when and why and how and who. And so when you're stuck for how to open, start a conversation, just start with one of those questions. You know, when? How long have you been in San Antonio? You know, what? What do you do? I mean, just those, start with just one of those words and it'll work and they'll start talking and sometimes you can't stop them. So you need to discipline yourself to really listen. An ancient philosopher said, nature gave us one tongue and two ears so we could hear twice as much as we speak. And Doug Larson said, wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you'd have preferred to talk. And this one's interesting, Carl Menninger. Listening is a magnetic and strange thing, a creative force. Now, I've thought about talking, you know, speaking something out as a creative thing or writing. He says listening is a creative force. The friends who listen to us are the ones we move toward. When we are listened to, it creates us makes us unfold and expand. And I just pictured a flower, you know, at night it might be a bud, but then when the sun comes out, it starts opening up. And that's what happens when you actually listen to someone and they can come out of their shell. Okay, so the message is you were created on purpose and you were created for a purpose and that purpose involves others and they're outside, so let's go outside. The most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. That wasn't some religious leader. That was Field Marshal Ferdinand Falk, who was the guy in charge of the Allied forces in World War I. He knew a lot about weapons. He knew a lot about getting things done. And he said the most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. So I want to play a song and give us a chance to reflect a little bit and, and connect with God. Um, the song talks about God sending us out with fire. And let that be your prayer to him, and we'll close after the song. I'll come back up. The song's called Sending. I'd like to ask um, any community group leaders that are here, including the youth, to come up. Um, 
There may be some that want prayer. It could be about this subject or anything else. And it helps sometimes if it's, there's somebody you know and have a relationship with. So we'll be up here and we welcome you to um, come talk to us. And otherwise, have a great rest of Mother's Day. Be blessed. <laughs>